the Galatians, they fell into this trap of believing that they could attain right standing with God and a degree of some sort of spiritual elitism by adhering to Jewish laws, by adhering to their customs. This caused them to compare themselves to other people, and it caused division in the church. And so as we're concluding this series today through the book of Galatians, Paul concludes this by bringing them back to what really matters. And so today, as we end this series, we're going to bring our heart's attention back to what really matters as well. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and go to Galatians chapter 6, and we'll get there in just a minute. And I want you to just hang on because we're going to do something a little different in a series on Galatians. We're going to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And some of you are like, but it's not a series on 2 Corinthians, Pastor Derek. It's a series on Galatians. Don't worry. It's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't think anyone really thinks that. It just pops in my brain because uh, you're like, I don't think that at all. Second uh, Corinthians 5 and verse 14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Now pay attention to this part here. I want you to get this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because he's entrusted us with the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making, it says, therefore we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we are both recipients and representatives of the message of reconciliation. This is what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. He was letting them know, guys, understand that what Christ has done in you, it doesn't just stop there. A lot of times we make these differentiations between becoming a Christian and being a Christian, and brothers and sisters in Christ, that shouldn't be so. If we become a Christian, no, now we must continue to be Christians, amen? We must continue to follow Christ. And so the faith that it took and what it took to help us to enter into that right standing with God is the thing that's going to continue to sustain us, to continue to live this life, to continue to walk out this journey of sanctification, to continue to walk out this journey that is supposed to be pointed to the glory of God, and that is the gospel. The gospel, the thing that we actually first heard that awakened our heart, that God opened our eyes to, that the Spirit of God drew us to, that we came to have faith to put our trust in Christ and our hope in Christ alone, that is the thing that not only saves us, but is the thing that sustains us, that helps us to grow, that helps us to move forward in this journey. And so, yes, we have been reconciled. Praise God that you and I have been reconciled if we have placed our faith, our hope, and our trust in Christ alone. And that is good news, but it doesn't stop there. I feel like too often 
in our culture, what we like to do is we like to kind of treat salvation and we treat the gospel as some proverbial ticket that has been punched. And once we get our ticket punched, then we want to move on to other things, almost as if to say, I got that already, pastor. I understand that message already. Now let's move on to other things. No, what could be greater than you or I who was destined for eternal separation from God being snatched from the jaws of hell and being brought into right standing with God through Jesus Christ? What could be greater than that? Is there a greater message than that? I don't think so. There's nothing else I could learn. There's nothing else I could obtain. There's nothing that could be told to me that could or should get me more excited than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing greater. There's no one greater than Jesus. There's nothing greater than this message. So the very thing that saves us, the very thing that places us positionally, being positionally justified in the eyes of God, the gospel, the good news that Christ did for us what we could not do in our flesh and never could do, it is now the thing that helps us to grow. It is now the thing that helps sustain us. So we must all remain anchored in this gospel. Amen? We must remain anchored. So yes, I have been reconciled, but now I have a responsibility in this reconciliation. I'm now a minister. And it doesn't mean you went to seminary. It doesn't mean that you went and learned how to do everything just right and learned how to perform all the ordinances and all these different things. No, no, no. It means every one of us who are in Christ has a responsibility. Every single person. doesn't matter if you have a gift of being a public speaker or a teacher. None of that is what he's talking about here. He said all of us who have been reconciled, all of us who have been made into right standing with God, we now have a responsibility to carry this ministry of reconciliation because we are recipients and we are representatives. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul accused the churches in Galatia in chapter 5, which we read last week, of biting and devouring each other. You remember this? Over in chapter 5, he was talking about staying in step with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit so you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And he began to talk about how you have freedom, brothers. You've been called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh as to where you're biting and you're devouring one another. Don't use it this way. And so we can tell that in this text that there was a lot happening here because this message of the Judaizers that had infiltrated the church in Galatia, what was going on is now these people are looking at how well they're adhering to the law. They're looking at how well they can follow the Torah, how well they can follow all the Jewish holidays, whether they've been circumcised or not. All of these boxes that they're checking off to somehow act as trophies or merit badges to say, oh, look what I've done. Look at how high I've climbed on the spiritual ladder. Look at how much spiritual elitism I can exercise over other people. And that's what that requires is that if you are going to view yourself that way, you have to compare yourself to someone else. And so if you're winning in the comparison game, guess what? It means someone else is losing. It means that you are putting yourself in a position where you are declaring by comparison that I am winning because you are losing. And that was not the intent of the gospel. The intent of the gospel was not to give us something to where we can hold on to that we've accomplished, that we've done, and we could exercise that judgment and that comparison over our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, well, I'm doing better at this Christian thing than you are. That was never the intent 
but yet it's being weaponized in that way because that's what happened when the Judaizers came in because now it's what you have done and what you haven't done and how good I am versus how good you think you are and there's all this comparison and he said, you guys, you are using your freedom to bite and devour one another. This is not fruit of the Spirit. This is not evidence of the Spirit of God being on the inside of you. Actually, this is the kind of stuff that comes from the works of the flesh. So this is a fleshly thing that you guys are doing. You're, you're biting. You're devouring each other. You see, we have been given this responsibility as those who have been saved, those who have been reconciled, those who have been forgiven, those who grace has been extended to, and we've received that message of grace. And that is now, as recipients, I have a responsibility to be someone who carries the message of reconciliation. You see, a comparison culture in a church creates a critical culture. I know we don't know anything about criticism in church. This is foreign to us. Unfortunately, we understand this all too well. A critical, comparison-driven culture will bite and devour. And here's what it does, unfortunately. It causes wounds in the body of Christ instead of ministering reconciliation, which is what we're called to do. We're called to be recipients of this message of reconciliation. We're called to be ministers of this message of reconciliation. And if we do what was happening in the church of Galatia, if we drift away from the anchor of the gospel, if we drift away from our intent being to truly glorify God and to stay anchored in the gospel during the process, if we drift away from these ideas and we drift away from these things, then we do end up becoming very fleshly. We do end up producing the fruits of the flesh. And we do end up biting and devouring one another because we begin to compare ourselves. We begin to get critical. We begin to think higher of ourselves than we should. And when we begin to think higher of ourselves than we should, man, that's when it's so easy for us to point fingers, for us to cast blame, for us to say, man, that person, they should be doing this, or they should be doing that, or they shouldn't be doing this, or they shouldn't be doing that. And we get so focused on everyone else and what they should be doing According to what standard? Normally, the standard of me. <laughs> the standard of my opinion. The standard of my preference. The standard of what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy. And these things happen in church all too often, and it causes people to bite and devour one another. I mean, I've been in full-time ministry now. I'm going on 24 years serving in pastoral role, and in that time, man, I've been criticized over just about everything you can be criticized over, not by people who don't know Jesus, but by the church. My family's been criticized. I mean, what my children wear, what my wife wears, well, what kind of car you drive, what kind of house you live in, um, you know, the types of things you, you do with your time, you know, all these things. You just regularly, it's feels like people are just criticizing you and it can become very wearisome and that can be true of anybody in any social instance because we're all trying to just just live in this arena of acceptance and if we operate outside of that arena of acceptance and we feel threatened we feel insecure we either have one or two choices either we're going to continue down that road and do what we believe we need to do or we're going to cower to fear and what other people expect us to do, and what other people want us to do. And so this is what's going on in the church of Galatia. It's the same critical idea. It's the same idea of, hey, there's these Jewish religious people. Man, they look really spiritual. 
They look really religious. They're really devout. They really say things in such a good way, man. They say it just right. And, man, I'm scared to be kicked out by them or persecuted by them or ostracized by them. And so in order to gain favor, these people were compromising. These people were trying to appease everyone because they thought this is a pathway to spirituality. They thought this is a pathway to spiritual elitism. They began to climb that ladder of success. They began to look down on everyone else and look good upon themselves. They began to get, as Scripture says, uh, don't, don't be drunk, right? And it's talking about don't be drunk on yourself. Don't think higher of yourself than you should. Don't think with, you know, that, that perspective of a person who's intoxicated, who's thinking higher of themselves than they should, where you're, you're making all sorts of bad judgment because your perspective is wrong because it's influenced by the flesh it's influenced by your own selfishness as to where you and i as christians man we are called to yes walk as one who has been forgiven and reconciled but do not forget christian when you were saved that wasn't the end of the story that was only just the beginning and the same thing that you were called to and that that he rescued you and called you from now you're to be a minister of that So aren't you glad that God was patient with you? I am. Are you glad God is still patient with you? Uh, Yeah, right? Whoever's sitting next to you. Aren't you glad God hasn't given up on us? Because how easy, how justified would God be in giving up on us? Uh, Pretty justified, if you ask me. But he hasn't given up on us because his love for us and his love it points to his glory and it shows how good he is and it shows how his love is something we can't even comprehend with our words with our definitions all of these things man you and i are called to yes walk in that love and we love that part about god let's sing about that let's hear sermons about that let's high five about that woo forgiveness woo grace woo love of god let's give it to each other Mm, hang on a second I mean, only the people that, like, line up with, like, what I think they should be doing, right? No, 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 the same way God was patient with you. Be patient with others. Ooh. That's hard, right? Especially those who are in the family of faith. Especially those who are in the family of faith. For us to be patient with one another. For us to be long-suffering with one another. As God has been long-suffering with you and I. To not bite and devour one another, but to actually take our servants' towels and wash one another's feet. Man, that's so hard, you guys, because it's so easy. It's easier to just get critical, right? It's easier to get critical. It's easier to do that. It's it's more difficult to stay focused on this idea of being a minister of reconciliation and carrying this message forward. Because it's easier to disperse out wounds to other people. But can I tell you, it's not helping our message when we do that. Actually, the thing that Jesus said would be the calling card would be the way that we love one another. Amen? I mean, if you've heard me preach this message before, and if this sounds familiar, it's because it's needed. Because often our wounds, man, they they, they cause a lot of damage. And oftentimes the words and the attitudes and the actions from our heart It's really over something very insignificant. Most of the time, most of the time, it's preference. Most of the time, it's just my opinion. And we're willing to wound and bite and devour. Brothers, sisters, this shouldn't be so, amen? 
See, if the Spirit of God is in us, then the life of God, the Spirit is that life. And if that life is in us, if that same life that flows through the vine, it flows through the branch, it's going to produce good fruit. That's what he talked about in chapter 5. He was saying that if you're walking with the Spirit, if the legitimate Spirit of God is on the inside of you, then there should be evidence of that. And the evidence of that is going to be whether or not you truly are walking in love and peace and joy and gentleness and all these fruits of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is in you. You're anchored in that truth. And that truth is guiding your perspective. That truth is guiding your interactions. That truth is guiding the interactions you have with other people and the intent of your heart. Not just what you say, but more importantly, why you say it. Not just what you do, but more importantly, why you do it. Because, man, we can get really good at trying to say and do the right things in the right moments, but it doesn't mean I meant it. (laughs) Right? I mean, if you ever raised children and you brought them to a place where they had to forgive each other, you've seen some of the most insincere apologies. You've seen some of the most empty-hearted apologies. You hit her. Why did you hit her? I don't know. She took my toy. Tell her you're sorry. Sorry. Now say it like you mean it, because that fixes things. That's such a goofy thing for parents to do. Tell them now, say it like you mean it. Like all of a sudden, they're going to have an aha moment and a moment of awakening and repentance and enlightenment. Wow, thank you for that instruction, dear parent or grandparent. I didn't realize I needed to say it like I meant it, but because you have instructed me to do so, now I have the equipment to be able to say it like I mean it. Thank you for saying that. What are we thinking? And all the kid, all the kid thinks when you say that is to say it slower, right? That's, the, that's all it means. I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> so silly. Doesn't make any sense at all. But we understand, man, we can do the right things. We can do the things we think are expected of of us. And we understand this culturally. It's easy for us to understand this culturally. Every culture has its own set of rules. Some spoken, some unspoken, right? Just by the way people do things and what they do and how they do it. Every culture does. And cultures differ. Even in the United States, there's stuff that's weird in the United States from one state to another. Uh, We moved from Arkansas to Wisconsin. And when we moved to Wisconsin, we felt like missionaries in like a foreign land. Because people in Wisconsin do some weird things. And then after living there for 10 years, we started doing those weird things too. And when we visit our families back in Arkansas, they're like, why are you doing these weird things? And we're like, oh. You know, there's just weird things that you do. Like, my kids automatically take their shoes off in people's houses. You don't do that in the South. But when you go over to someone's house you've never met before, you just go, boom, you know, take their shoes off. It's just what you do. If there's snow on the ground or not, it doesn't matter. And my family in Arkansas are like, why are you taking your shoes off? And vice versa, when they would come and visit us in Wisconsin, and they'd walk around, like, I would cringe. Why are they not taking off their shoes? <laughs> they don't know. There's all these weird little cultural things, right, that you don't understand, that you may not know, that you have to learn. And so all of us have to exist within the culture that we're living in, and there's these rules, right? And when you learn the rules to be accepted within a culture, 
if you can play by the rules good enough to be accepted by the people you care about being accepted about by, if that's all you do and you navigate life, you're going, I'm good. I don't have to do anything different. I'm following the moral code of my culture. I'm doing the, doing the things that's not too outside color and too far outside of the lines where I would be ostracized or rejected. And so I'm good. And a lot of us just stop there because that really ends up being our goal is just to be accepted by those around us. And we're missing the gospel. We're missing being anchored in the truth. We're m- missing our ministry and our purpose because we punched our ticket. We're socially accepted. As long as I don't mess that up, everything's good. I'll just try to make some money, live comfortably, and, you know, stay healthy and stay out of trouble. And people think that that's living a Christian life, and it's not. They're missing the ministry that we have. It's not just doing the right things to get by and to be accepted by the people around you and your peers and your culture. God is not looking at what we do. God is looking at why we do it. Because a lot of us can do the right thing, and we can even argue with other people that we've been doing the right thing because when we began to look like the Judaizers, we began to think, oh, I've done these good things, so therefore I must be a good person. And I'm looking to my good works as evidence that I am a good person and I have done good things. People qualify trying to be a good person, even apart from Christ. The Christian does it too, but so does the non-Christian. You hear these types of things all the time. Oh, I'm a good person because I do fill in the blank or because I don't do fill in the blank. And it's all about social acceptance. It's all about living within the moral code of your culture. And we miss the gospel in the middle of it. We miss reconciliation in the middle of it because God looks at the heart. And we say these silly things to defend ourselves and justify ourselves like God knows my heart. Has anyone ever said that to you? Have you ever said that to anyone? That's a scary thing to say. That is a very, very scary statement if you think about it. God knows my heart. Mm -hmm. That is a true statement, but people say it to defend their actions. They say it to defend their behaviors. Well, you can't judge me. God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. He knows what's really going on underneath the surface. So you can fool me. I can be fooled. I can be duped. You can do all the right things around me you're supposed to do to be accepted socially. And I I don't even know what's going on beneath the surface. But God does. And the only one who can change that peace beneath the surface is God. It is his gospel. It is this good news of Jesus Christ. It is us being reconciled. And so now you and I have been given the message of reconciliation. You see, this is something different. It's something meaningful. It's something that didn't just change me the first time I heard it and received it. We look at Romans 10, 9, and 10 as if it's some sort of formula, and then we stop growing in the gospel after we have heard it. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. Yes, that's true. But I believe that Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a continual confessing, a continual belief in your heart that should never stop. It's not just a one-time done and check that box and I move on. No, I should always be confessing Christ, amen? He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I should always be believing in my heart and deepening that belief day by day, amen? Amen. This is that growth. It's that same thing that's going to start changing me, the gospel. It's not just this one-time intersection. It's this continual relationship. That is the difference. And we have to continue to grow because if the Spirit of God is in us, the fruit of that is going to be a heart that doesn't bite and devour, doesn't cause division, 
but actually it's going to be a heart that brings healing. With that in mind, it's my intro. Let's read Galatians chapter 6, <laughs> verse 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, that means a willful sin, like I know I'm doing wrong and I choose to do it anyways, okay? If anyone's caught in any transgression, any kind, right? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Remember the law of Christ that he talked about in previous chapters? The prayer of the Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, you remember? For if anyone thinks that he's something, when he's nothing, what does he do? He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, you see here in verse 2, it says, bear one another's burdens, and in verse 5, he says, each has to bear his own load. That's talking about two different things, all right? The first one is talking about burdens in the sense of um, what you're dealing with, going through your challenges, your struggles, and that we help to bear one another's burdens by the way that we love one another through those things and encourage, hold each other accountable, those types of things. That's what he's speaking of there. This is two different Greek words here in this passage, all right? The second one, this bear your own load, that means more like your equipment. That means your, like your rucksack, for those of you who maybe served in the military, that's your rucksack. That carries your equipment, your necessities, all right? That's you carrying your own load. So that's the idea here, is that we are to be equipped to be able to do this. We are to be equipped to be able to serve in this kind of way, to where we can do this and actually consider ourselves spiritually mature by the love that we have for one another and the way that we serve. And he said, even those of you who are more mature in that and have grown in that and are serving in that kind of way, he said, even you still keep a watch on yourselves because don't think you don't have the propensity to be tempted. Don't think that you couldn't be drifting away from this and start thinking of yourselves more highly than you should. So, so instead, don't, don't look at it that way. Make sure that you're producing the right kind of fruit. That's the idea here and what he's saying. Because if there's to be any testing, it shouldn't be in comparison with one another but rather it should be us testing the fruit of our own lives. That we are testing. This is what he's saying here. He's just finished talking about the fruits of the Spirit. And he's saying, listen, you need to make sure that you're testing your own work. That you're asking the Spirit of God to reveal to you in a spirit of humility. Is there anything in me that is wrongly motivated? Anything in me that's an impure motive? That's selfish in nature that I need to die to, that I need to repent to. Because I want to not only be reconciled, but I want to be a minister of reconciliation. So Lord, let me test even the own, own, my own intent. Sometimes we can get in such a rhythm that we use our rhythms and our routines as like little badges that we wear. And we kind of look back and we go, man, I sure am doing good. Especially compared to all these jokers, right? Especially compared to my parents, my siblings, my friends, my co-workers, we begin to compare ourselves, and that's dangerous. He says, don't do this. Instead, look at your brothers. Look at those as someone who you actually are loving and caring for, even when they get caught in transgression of any kind. Bear with them. Remember, don't even let yourself take that concept. And so this is the idea here. He's saying, don't even let yourself get caught up in seeing someone fall into some sort of transgression, and you go, man, <laughs> 
well, you know, I am a very spiritual person, and this person has obviously struggled, and they obviously need me, <laughs> you know, so. And you almost see it as reaching down, and you see it as you're better than them, and you're missing the point. You're missing the gospel in that. He's saying, don't let those transgressions create that kind of heart in you. Instead, if you consider yourself spiritual, here's how you restore them. In a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of pride, not in a spirit of comparison, but in a spirit of gentleness. That word gentleness is not a popular word back then, all right? That word that he uses there in the Greek for gentleness, it wasn't a common trait that you don't want to be known as, as a man. It wasn't like, he's such a gentle man. We say that today, you know, with a certain affection. Oh, what a little gentleman. Oh, he's so gentle. He's so kind. You didn't say that about dudes back in the day, especially in this culture. If you said, oh, he's such a gentle person, they were like, oh, man, really? That's one of those gentle guys, right? It was not a compliment. And as a matter of fact, the, the reason that Paul even uses this idea of one of the fruits of the Spirit being gentleness, that would be somewhat challenging for the culture of that day, especially the masculine culture of that day, to hear that and to receive that and go, I'm supposed to be being gentle, really? It wasn't something that was pursued or championed or celebrated. And you have to understand that culturally, how significant that this is, that he says you must restore him in a spirit of gentleness because this requires something of you. It requires that you humble yourself. That's what it requires to be a gentle person. It requires humility. It requires me to think less of myself and think more of another person, to be patient with them, to be long-suffering with them, to be kind to them, not to try to punish them and, and with my own brand of justice. No, no, no. Instead, I'm supposed to be gentle. Ooh, ooh, that's a challenge, especially for Paul's readers. You have to understand this. You see, we have to test our own works by the fruits of the Spirit or the evidence that Christ is working in us and through us. And understand this, church, that the longer that we walk with God, the more surrendered our will is to him and the more sensitive that we should be to the conviction of the Holy Spirit living in us. As we walk with God and as he begins to work in us and through us, we should be more sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to where now we're more aware. I'm more aware now in my journey of faith, I think, than I've been at any point in my life of the things that please God and the things that aren't pleasing to God. And it's not a fear of what any of you think. And it's not a fear of what my parents think or what my friends think. No, it truly is the Lord leading and guiding me. And I truly believe that as you grow and as you walk with the Lord, you become more concerned with pleasing God and less concerned with pleasing man. You become more concerned with what he cares about and less concerned with what people care about. I want to please him. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do it as under the Lord. Amen? Amen? Whatever you do, work, things you enjoy, things you're entertained by, things you participate in, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. And as you begin to learn what pleases God, what glorifies God, your heart becomes more attuned. How do I get there? How do I grow in that? By staying anchored in the gospel and growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By remembering your need for him and never forgetting that need. You see, the quicker I should be to want to repent, the quicker I should want to let go of offenses, the quicker I should be to admit fault, the quicker I should be to seek restoration. 
Because if we think ourselves spiritual, he says, if we recognize our propensity to be sinful, and we are so filled with grace, patience, kindness, we will seek to restore, not to criticize, not to destroy, and not to wish destruction on those who have harmed us. Amen? See, to reach these cities and to impact generations beyond our lifetime, we must prioritize restoring and healing those who have been wounded. We have been reconciled, and we have been called to the ministry of reconciliation. It's part of this calling that we have here. It's this ministry that we've been given. Yes, praise God, we've been reconciled. I think all of us who have received the gospel and who have been awakened to our need for Jesus, we will high-five about the gospel. We will love high-fiving about the gospel. Praise God. For what Jesus has done by sending his son. Woohoo! And then he says, now you've been given this ministry to go. To be ambassadors. Carry this message of reconciliation with you. And to live this out. Not just to those who are outside of the family of faith. But as he says in scripture, especially to those who are of the family of faith. You see, it's part of our love that we have. It's part of the way we wash each other's feet. It's this idea, that's what Jesus said, right? You remember the story about Jesus washing his disciples' feet? Right before he was arrested? What did he say when he was done washing the disciples' feet? He said, what you've seen me do to you, now go and do to who? One another. That's what he said. He told the disciples, what you just experienced me doing to you, now I want you to go do that to one another. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This means we also must stop being a part of wounding and criticizing. We must grow in love towards one another in the body of Christ because it is essential to our mission. It is essential. This isn't something that we do on the side or part-time. This is essential to our mission. It's what 2 Corinthians 5 was talking about. Let's keep reading verse 6. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And then he says this, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap. If we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone. And especially to those. Who are of the household of faith. You hear what he's saying? You hear what the spirit of God is even saying to you today? What he's saying to us? You see we cannot think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Because humility is the key. He says here. That don't be deceived. God is not mocked. And he's saying God is not mocked in his grace, in this freedom that he's given. Because remember, he talked about freedom in chapter 4, and then he talks about freedom in chapter 5. He's saying God is not going to be mocked with this concept of freedom. He didn't give you freedom to give you a license to go and do whatever you wanted to do. You see, it's not this concept of you just getting to do whatever, it's all covered under grace, it's fine, he doesn't care, whatever. 
No, it's not what I've been saved in order to do. It's what I've been saved and freed from. And now I am a slave, a prisoner, no longer to sin. I am a slave and a prisoner to Christ because I've died to myself. And it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So now, I, I, I have now been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus, amen? And it's this idea of me dying to myself. And now, the life I now live, I live by faith in Jesus. The Spirit of God now is on the inside of me. And he's directing, he's ordering my footsteps. And I have to continue to crucify that flesh. Galatians 6, let's read the rest of this chapter. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Isn't this an interesting statement? (laughs) Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying one of the main reasons that they're still trusting in circumcision is because these Jewish people don't want to take responsibility or be persecuted for crucifying the Messiah. Because if they really believed Christ was the Messiah, they wouldn't have crucified him. And he's saying if they don't trust in circumcision, if they don't get you to believe in circumcision, if they don't get you to trust in that, then they're admitting that they crucified the Messiah. And he said they they don't want to do that. It's their pride. They don't, they don't want to believe that. They can't receive that. They don't want to hear that. You see, if the Judaizers accept the free gift of grace from Christ, then they have to acknowledge that they took the responsibility for crucifying the Messiah. But here's the truth. We all took part in crucifying the Messiah. Because Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It wasn't the Roman soldier that drove the nails in the hands and the feet of Jesus. It was you and I. It was our sin that put him on that tree. We all have participated in the necessity of Christ being crucified. And then Scripture says, but we were crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ, and we were raised to new life with Christ. So now death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory because now I have been adopted. I have been brought in. I have been declared a son or a daughter with God, and now I am righteous, and I have been put in right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's no work of my own. Otherwise, I could boast about it. And I've been reconciled. Do you see the beauty of this? He said, man, they don't want to deal with that. They can't deal with that truth. So they're trying to get you to buy into trusting in your own works, in a work of the flesh, in this sign of covenant that they think somehow makes them right in the eyes of God. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. (laughs) He said, man, they checked that one off on the box, but they're not even keeping the law, and they're sitting here telling you to? But they desire to have you circumcised so they can boast in your flesh. They can say, look at how many people we had converted. What a weird thing to celebrate. I mean, that's how we see it, right? (laughs) I mean, you know how many people I got to be circumcised? I got 20 people. You know what I mean? That's a weird thing to talk about 
at the coffee shop. <clears throat> but they looked at it differently. They saw this as a means to be in right standing with God. They thought they were God's chosen because of this work of the flesh. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Man, if there's any anchoring scripture in the whole letter to the church in Galatia, I believe that it's this verse right here. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but here's what matters. What does he say? A new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he's calling them a covenant people, these Galatians. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The same word used here, this phrase, bear the marks of Jesus, it would be the same word that would be used as like a, a, a brand, like a branding iron or, or a tattoo, like an, a, a something a slave would get, like you are owned by Christ. He said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Yes, this could also be read as, you know, through the physical persecutions that he had been through, but the, the literal reading would say, I have been branded in my body for Christ. My body is not my own. It belongs to Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit brothers amen you see the gospel severs us from our past and the world and it unites us to christ and to one another this is this big idea for today that the gospel it severs us from our past it reconciles us places us in right standing it severs us from the world he said I i'm cut off man this is what he said in in verse 14 he said, I, 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 I've been severed from this world. Now, I'm only living for the glory of God. I'm not living for the things everyone else pursues. I'm not living for my own selfish ambition. And we have a ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of the gospel. We must restore what really matters. And to Jesus, here's what really matters. People. To Jesus, these cities matter. To Jesus, the next generation matters. To Jesus, those who have been wounded by the church really matter. So this should really matter to BCC, amen? These cities should really matter. That's why we say we're for these cities, for, our, for all people. The next generation, that means that we're wanting to make an impact beyond our lifetime. Those who have been wounded, they matter. They matter to us because they matter to Christ. And we understand that we have been reconciled. And we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And so how do I live that ministry of reconciliation out? By walking in the Spirit and letting the fruits of the Spirit be something evidenced in my life by the way I see others, by the way I treat other people. This goodness and gentleness and kindness and this faithfulness, this love, this selfless love, this, this patience that I have this bearing one another's burdens, this not thinking of myself more highly than I ought, this not biting and devouring each other, this spirit of unity, this spirit of love that Christ has called me to, this remembering of who I was without Christ and before Christ, this remembrance of the gospel and when my path intersected with this moment where I was blind and then now I see. 
this moment where I died to myself and now I live to Christ. And so now, man, to live in this life is to live into Christ. And if I die, it's just gain. It's just like I, I don't lose either way as a follower of Jesus. But I have a responsibility, not just to live my life how I want, not just to punch my ticket and move on to the next thing. No, now I'm ministering reconciliation. I'm modeling reconciliation, especially to those in the household of faith, because we've been transformed by the gospel, because we're not the same, because we're different. It changes my heart position, it changes my intent, it changes my motive, because God is looking at my heart. He does know my heart. And as I lean on him, and as I lean into the gospel, and I don't lean into my own works, and I don't lean into comparing myself to other people, when I lean into the goodness of Jesus Christ, then the things that glorify God begin to come out of me, and it is for his glory. Because now I'm an instrument, a vessel, to be used, to be poured out for his glory. So anything that he gives to me, anything he does in me, anything he blesses me with, all sorts of blessings, it's meant to be used for his glory, to be poured out. Because I'm just an instrument to be played for his glory. I'm just a vessel to be used for his glory. And it is all for his glory. Amen? And so I'm to live for the glory of God now. And then one day I'm going to just live for that glory and enjoy him forever. And this is why I'm even here. For his glory. Amen? So Lord, help us to do this. Help us get this. Help us understand this. Because we all wrestle, Lord. And as we've gone through Galatians... Father, let this not just be another sermon series where we take some good notes and we have a few good conversations and we move on with our lives. But Lord, let there be moments of awakening. Let there be moments of decision. Let there be moments of transformation. Let there be moments of conviction and repentance. Let there be moments, Father, of where even some may realize their need for you, cry out to you, and become adopted and brought into your family. So Father, we ask you, to help us to see our need for you and to cry out to you. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, you are my hope. Work in us and through us for what brings you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.